Good morning, my name's Cathy. I'm going to read God's word now. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you'd like a Bible and to read along with me, uh, there are ushers handing them out. Just raise your hand. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. For I have known your eagerness and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers to you so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty and so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, hi there, everyone. It's really great to see you here today. Keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 9. It's a fantastic part of God's Word that we're looking at together. Really glad that you can be with us here today. Thanks for those who are joining us online as well. Uh, Why don't we pray now and ask our great God to help us to understand him and the, the goodness of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much 
for your gift to us of eternal life, of salvation, forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that as we come to think about money and possessions and giving and generosity, that you transform our hearts and minds continually as we know you more and more. Father, please fill us with your grace so that we can share your kindness, your good news with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a man was trying to understand the deep things of God and time and the universe. So he asks God, God, how long is a billion years to you? And God says, well, a billion years is like a second to me. And the man asks, well, how much is a billion dollars to you? And God says, well, a billion dollars is like a cent. So the man says, God, can I have one cent? And God says, sure, in a second. <laughs> well, we're thinking today about the topic of money. We're thinking about generosity and our heart's desires and the idea of giving and having a godly perspective, a godly understanding of the place of money and giving and, and how generosity works. Because we're coming today to one of the most misquoted and misunderstood passages of the Bible. And the simple reason it's misquoted and misunderstood is because often when people read the Bible, they bring their own expectations, they bring their own framework of understanding. They've got their own filters, if you like. It's a lens through which the Bible's message comes to them. This must be true, and so the Bible has to get filtered through. And so it's shaped by their understanding rather than the way it should be, which is our understanding should always be conformed to the Bible. And so this is how people approach God all the time. They get God and they bring him to fit into their lives. They squeeze him in somewhere around all the stuff that they've already decided matters and they make a God that fits them, fits their ideas, fits their lifestyle, fits their desires. A God who's created for their purposes. That's really sad because God is in fact who is the one who's created us for his purposes. Our whole lives belong to him. Who we are, every thought, every action, every word belongs to him and is to be conformed to him. So as people come to this passage, 2 Corinthians 9, you know what? Their eyes light up because in it they find an excuse for what they've already decided they want to do, live for money. And so they take verse 6 the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. And they see there a promise of how to get lots of money. As if God is telling us how to get rich. First, you have to sow lots. You have to give lots of money to church. Then you'll get heaps back. You'll get rich in return. So your motive for giving, according to them, is actually getting and they read verse 8 when it says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, and they hear that as a promise, Christians will always be rich, always be successful, and always be prosperous. Ignoring the gospel and ignoring the Christian experience through the Bible, they keep going, no, this is what's going to happen. They read verse 10, God will also provide and multiply your seed and increase your harvest. Verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way. And this, they think this is telling Christians, you can and you will be really rich. And here's how to do it. 
give your money to me. And so the minister of the largest church in America, this is the biggest church in the United States, there's a lot of people going to church and a lot of them are at his church. Joel Osteen looks at this passage and he uses the analogy of winning a lottery ticket, which is unfortunate. I'm not sure why you'd use gambling as an illustration for a Christian attitude towards money, but that already tells you something's wrong. He says, we think if we bought a lottery ticket and your winning numbers came up, you'd be rich, wouldn't you? And he says, wrong. Because you actually need to go to the lottery office. You need to take your ticket and go claim what's yours. And so Christians, if you're not rich, when you've won the lottery in the gospel, if you're not rich, it's because you haven't gone to claim your reward. You haven't gone to claim your harvest yet. It's your fault. You haven't got enough faith. You haven't trusted God enough. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't given enough money to me, he says. God can't give it to you. You have to go get it. And the problem with this is they keep, they actually haven't taken the time to read this passage and actually listen to what it says. They've skimmed across the top, looking for the things they like and ignored the word of God. They've decided beforehand what it must be about and they've let their greed, their own love for money, cloud their vision of God. And they haven't understood the last verse in this passage. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know what? These people who think wrongly about this, they're thinking in the wrong currency. They're thinking in the currency of the world by the standards of this age. All through this chapter as they read of God's grace and God's gift and how God provided, God will bless you, God will enrich you. They think it's talking about their real God, money. And so in the end, they have a lot to say about getting in a passage that is in fact all about giving. Paul is actually addressing the church in Corinth about the issue in verse 1 of the ministry to the saints. Serving the holy ones. Um, it turns out the Corinthians have already made a commitment to give money, to give practical support to their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. That's who the saints are. That's who the holy ones are. The Bible calls Christians saints. We are all saints when we put our trust in Jesus. We're all holy ones, washed clean by his death and resurrection. These saints are the Christians in Jerusalem and the Christians have, the Corinthians have made a commitment. And so that Paul has already boasted about them to the Macedonians, who back in chapter 8, Paul had boasted to the Corinthians about the Macedonians. He's boasting about these churches and their just generosity. And now in chapter 9, Paul wants to urge the Corinthians to keep their commitment. Follow through on your word. And he wants to talk about their motive in doing this act of generosity, this service of the saints. And this passage is fundamentally about motives, not amounts. It's concerned for matters of the heart and not material wealth. Because have a look at verses 2 to 5. For I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians... Achaia has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that your boast, our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty and so that you would be ready just as I said. 
Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I consider it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. Now, Paul says, I've sent these Christian brothers ahead of you, including Titus, the guys who've brought this letter from Paul to the church. I've sent them ahead to encourage you to be ready with your gift, the gift that you'd promised. He doesn't want to arrive when he finally gets to Corinth. He doesn't want to turn up and they go, oh, yeah, that's right, the giving. We did say we'd give money, didn't we? Um, I probably have some coins here somewhere, some loose change. He doesn't want that at all. He wants them to be ready, prepared, thoughtful, considered on their gift. Which is interesting because I know sometimes people can think that spontaneity equals spirituality. That if it's spur of the moment, off the cuff, unplanned, spontaneous, then it must be more spiritual. It must be the work of God. It must be authentic and real. But that's a misunderstanding of how God works in us by his spirit and what God desires from his people. It's not more generous if you haven't planned it or thought about it. It's not more godly to wait until the need arises before you give. Paul is writing to encourage them, be ready so that it's a gift and not forced. It's not reluctantly given. It's not awkwardness of the moment, but it's actually from your heart. And he makes this point clear in verse 6. Being prepared will actually help you to be more generous and more fruitful. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Now, it's interesting that Paul has used that analogy. He could have simply said, the person who gives generously will receive generously. But he doesn't say that. The person who gives lots of money will get lots of money. It's not what he says. He uses the analogy of seed and harvest. And this is the picture that the Bible often uses to talk about the kingdom of God. And so we should be asking ourselves, what is the harvest that God desires and therefore we desire? What is the harvest that God promises in abundance? What is the harvest that we should be investing in and sowing generously towards? What is the harvest that the Bible keeps talking about that I should generously give my money towards? Is it me having lots of money? Do you think Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look, you guys are quite rich. Macedonians, chapter 8, very poor. But you guys are quite rich. But if you want to get even richer, give some of your money to the Christians in Jerusalem. Then you'll get heaps of money back. Is that what he's saying? No. Because then the end goal, the end point of all of God's blessings is money now. But you know when Jesus talks about the seed being planted in Mark 4? It's the seed of the gospel. And the gospel is planted in people's lives and it grows and it produces, reproduces and it results in a harvest of gospel growth, gospel ministry, saved sinners, 30, 60, 100 times multiplication, he says. Jesus looks, Greg mentioned this before, but Jesus looks at the crowds of people in Matthew 9 like sheep without a shepherd and he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is people 
lost people who need to be brought into the kingdom. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers so they can make lots of money? No, so that there can be a harvest of gospel growth and of people saved and of God glorified and of righteousness lived out and the knowledge of God filling the earth the way the waters fill the sea. Even in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, talks about the difficult times that God puts us through, the times of hardship, the times of suffering, that Hebrews 12 says is God lovingly dealing with us as his sons and daughters and disciplining us, refining us, training us for our good because he loves us. That doesn't fit in with the prosperity gospel, does it? That God's loving plan for you includes discipline and hardship. But listen to this. Hebrews 12 verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's the harvest. That's the fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. James 3.18 says the same thing. Godly wisdom, which he will give to anyone who asks, godly wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness. That's sown in peace. And that's what we see in our passage. If you just skip down to verse 10. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul is urging the Christians to express their devotion to Jesus to express their desire to see the kingdom grow by using their money generously to sow towards a harvest of gospel fruit, a harvest of peace and righteousness and salvation and God's glory. Give this money because it will be going to the ministry of the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, a harvest of thankfulness and partnership, a harvest of love and more generosity. That's what we'll keep seeing as the passage goes on, you can tell that verse 6 is not talking about how much money you're going to get back if you give generously because of the following verse. Again, he's talking about motives. Verse 7, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. See, people often ask, how much should I give to church? There is no amount. People want the amount that I can tick the box. Is it a percentage? I mean, the Old Testament did talk a bit about 10%, but actually 10% was only one of the ways that they had to give. If you add up all the sacrifices, as well as tithing, as well as first fruits, thanksgiving offerings, prayer offerings, sin offerings, it's roughly 30%. But it's not about a percentage. There is no amount. You have to make a decision. You have to prayerfully consider this. This is an expression of your relationship with God. Don't give reluctantly. Don't think, what's the bare minimum that I can get there and so I've ticked the box. Don't give out of compulsion. Give in a way that expresses you trust God to take care of your every need. Give in a way that expresses your love for Christ who died for you. Give in a way that says there's nothing more important to you or precious to you than God's glory. And your treasure is in heaven 
And that can't be destroyed. It can't be taken away from you. When earthly treasures are used for that purpose, give cheerfully. You know, you don't have to give money to church. You don't have to give your money away. But in Jesus Christ, you get to. You get to be like Jesus. You get to do it gladly. This is amazing, spectacular gift that God has given us that we get to be like him. God loves it when we obey him gladly from the heart, not just going through the motion. So, you know, someone, some people might give $5 a week and that is generous because they don't have a lot and they are very happy to give it. Someone else might give $500 a week and it's still not generous because their hearts are not right, their motives are not right, they resent it and feel it kind of bleeding them and $500 actually is, is nothing to them. See, with money, your motive matters. How can we be cheerful giving away something we like so much? Are we cheerful because we're going to get lots more of it back? No. As Christians, we understand that possessing money, even using money for ourselves, is less important, less valuable, less significant, less joyful than the privilege of serving others and using our money to minister to others in order to please God. Remember last week, you don't remember last week, you didn't hear 2 Corinthians 8. Um, if you flick back, in, last, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, we're reminded that very often God's grace, of God, God's grace comes to us through each other. God looks after us through one another. There is something infinitely more important in our lives than our money and our possessions. So give what you have and give cheerfully. As Christians, the greatest commandment is to love. Love and generosity touches both our actions and our attitudes, doesn't it? Love is about what we do and about our attitude as we do it. What we do and why we do it, motive matters. And have a look at the promise of verse 8 in chapter 9. Look again at what is promised to those who give generously and cheerfully. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. See, instead of your generosity being a factor of how much we want to get in the future, our generosity is an expression of our contentment in what we have in God and in his promise to look after us. What will God overflow to us? Grace. What will we be able to excel in? Good works. What will we have in all things, at all times, everything we need? You know, it's interesting, the word there that's translated as everything you need is used in one other place in the New Testament. Same word, same topic of money and generosity. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, where Paul again is talking about money. And it's a really helpful uh, uh, chapter that it's worth reading the whole thing at some point. But I'm just going to read from verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich 
fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you just flick over to verse 17, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope in the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides with us all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, generous and willing to share. It doesn't say it's wrong to be rich. It doesn't say desire to be rich. It says whatever God's given you, love him and be generous. And you know what's interesting there? In verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment, same word as translated here is everything you need. It's the idea of self-sufficiency. It's the confidence we have enough. We're content. We're full in God. That's real riches. Do you know the secret to being rich instantly is to be happy with what you've got. The moment you're happy with whatever you've got, you're rich. You don't need more. You're not craving more. You've got to that point. Loving money and desiring money and trusting money and craving money, living for money, praying for money, pretending that godliness is about getting money is a way of destruction and grief. So that's why Paul can urge Christians to sacrificial generosity with the promise back in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that in all things, at all times, having all contentment, you may excel in good works. And excel, actually it's the same word as they translated as overflow earlier in the verse. God overflows all grace, abounds in grace, so that we may abound and overflow in good works. That's the plentiful harvest. A whole bunch of good works overflowing. Because we trust him and we're content with whatever we have. God will provide everything we need to have a life that honours him. He doesn't promise to give us everything we need to fulfil our wildest dreams and worldly ambitions. He loves us too much to give us that. He's the God, verse 9, who provides and distributes freely. He gives to those who have nothing because his righteousness endures forever. It doesn't say his riches endure forever, his righteousness this is God's concern, this abounding in good works, this harvest of righteousness. You see it again there in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Now, people see those first four words and want to stop right there. You will be enriched. See? God promises, I'll be rich. I just have to give to the money to the church first so that they're rich and then I'll get rich. But Paul says you'll be enriched in all things for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. That's the outcome that Paul is concerned for, that our generosity is heading towards. This is the fruit of the harvest, more generosity. God provides, God enriches us for generosity and for thankfulness. Now, someone might say, yes, but that means God wants us to be rich so that we can be more generous. You know what the problem with that is? Again, it assumes generosity increases when you have more money. You know what is usually the case? It's the other way around. 
If you're not generous with a little, you will not be generous with a lot. It's not about the amount. The other problem is it assumes that generosity is measured by the amount that you give and not by your heart. God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't say a massive giver. Remember Jesus in Luke 20 commends the poor widow. This poor widow, whose society is basically ignoring, goes to the temple and she puts in two pennies. Nothing. And he says she gave more than the rest of them because she gave everything she had. That's generosity. It's not the amount. And in fact, last week, if you do go back to chapter 8, let me read the first couple of verses of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You hear that? God gave them grace, not of having lots of money, but of serving others and being generous even when they didn't have any money. That's the grace that overflowed to them. They had no money, but their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, God will provide you everything you need to be overflowing with generosity, and that is the knowledge of his abundant love for you in Jesus. You don't need more money to be generous. You need more knowledge of God's love in Jesus. What will, what will help you overflow with generosity is the knowledge that no matter how much you have or how little you have, you are loved and you are blessed with all his spiritual blessings. The knowledge that you have an eternal home that can be never taken away from you. The knowledge that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. What you need to overflow with generosity is confidence that God provides a heart that desires to love and serve others, and a view of the eternal harvest that really matters. That's what will make you generous. You see it again in chapter 9, verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. That's the harvest that you reap. That's the fruit that you bear. That's the grace of God that you're concerned for. On a practical level, the Corinthians are meeting the needs of their Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. I mean, it's a real sign of unity and partnership, isn't it? It's fellowship in the gospel. These Gentile churches in Macedonia and Greece are sharing practically what God has given them to meet the needs of their brothers in Christ Back in Jerusalem, there's been a horrible famine, drought back in Jerusalem, and they're practically meeting the needs. This is what the gospel has done. It's brought unity where there was division. It's brought love where there was hostility. These used to be enemies. And now they're sending enormous amounts of money for their good. It's a great thing for Christians to use what God has given us to supply the needs of our Christian brothers and sisters who are lacking But you see, even that has a bigger purpose in the kingdom of God. It's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. 
Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to think beyond themselves, to think bigger than immediate practical needs. Because the greater harvest is there in verse 13. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. That's the result. That's the harvest. That's the fruit. They will glorify God. Notice they're not glorifying God that they got money. They're glorifying God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ, which is proven in your generosity and your sharing. They're glorifying God for something that matters much more than money, the gospel that work in people's lives. They're glorifying God because of the partnership in the gospel that is being expressed. Again, Paul is not promising that if you give lots of money to the Christians in Jerusalem, then they're going to give you money in return. But he is promising that your generosity will result in good works, thankfulness, glorifying God, and verse 14, deep affection for one another. Verse 14, and as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, united together in prayer, united together in deep affection, united together in the surpassing grace of God. That's what transforms your attitude to money and your attitude to giving when you have experienced and you know God's surpassing grace God's generosity and kindness to us in Jesus. And when you look around the room and you have experienced God's indescribable grace in giving us each other to be friends and brothers and sisters and a community and we're in this together is an amazing gift of God. So that even just mentioning God's grace makes Paul shout out and exclaim with joy at how amazing it is with thankfulness for how good God's saving grace is. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I can guarantee you he's not thinking money. So be thankful for the money that God has given you and the possessions that God has given you. They are his gift for you to enjoy. He loves giving them to you. Be thankful for them. But more importantly, remember his indescribable gift to you. His grace in Jesus dying for our sins. His gift in Jesus taking our place on the cross. His rich blessings in sharing on us his love and his mercy and his compassion. Because when you understand, truly understand his indescribable gift... In Jesus, then you'll recognize his gift in you is giving to others. God's grace to you is to serve and benefit others. So let's pray. Father God, you are the God of all grace and mercy and compassion. Your indescribable gift to us in Jesus is spectacular and good. Father, please keep reminding us of what you've given us and how far you've gone for us and for our benefit and for our sake. And Father, help us to have these hearts transformed by your grace 
that we would be people of grace and compassion and mercy. Help us, Father, to put our trust in you to provide what we need to live for you. Help us, Father, to rely on the community that you've given to us, this gift of belonging here at church, that we'd be there for each other and we'd rely on each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, help us to be generous, sowing richly towards this harvest of righteousness and peace and the gospel growing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.